Hello and welcome to this BME podcast. I'm Maurice Gordon and I'll be co-hosting with my colleagues here today. I am the chair of the editorial committee at BME and today I'm joined by one of my uh, esteemed colleagues, one of the chairs of the BME Educational Committee. This is Teresa Pavlikovska and also the director of the Health Professions Education Centre at the RCSI in Dublin. Hello, Teresa. Thank you for joining me. Hello, not at all. Pleasure. Fantastic. So what we've decided to do today is we're going to talk about a couple of uh, education reviews within health professions. Uh, We've got sort of two very different ends of the spectrum that we've both selected for probably very similar reasons. Uh, The first one that I'm going to talk about is a recent publication in the uh, journal Medical Education about flipped classrooms. Uh, and then uh, Teresa's got a review that she's very interested to talk about, which is actually one of our Beamy reviews, uh, number 23, by one of our colleagues, Jill Thistlethwaite, that was published a few years ago. Um, so where I thought we'd start, Teresa, is uh, perhaps with the more recent publication, the one in medical education about flipped classrooms. Uh, and if it's all right with you, I thought I'd tell you a few things about this paper and perhaps ask you of your thoughts and some, some elements, if that's okay. Yeah, no, that seems like a very good Good place to start, absolutely. So this was published in uh, 2017, uh, Volume 51 of Medical Education. The title is A Systematic Review of the Effectiveness of Flipped Classrooms in Medical Education. So pretty clear title, and it's by Chen et al. Uh, And when I first saw this come through, a very recent issue, uh, I was drawn to it because I think this is such a topical area. And just looking back at last year's Amy meeting, Flipped classrooms seemed to be very much uh, uh, the talk of the town, and there were so many different abstracts and workshops, and you realize that it's one of these terms that, that in many ways, you could see almost as ubiquitous across uh, the professions as it stands at the moment. So seeing something synthesize it, uh, I thought it was a very laudable goal, really. Yes, I think it's a really good idea to, I mean, BME reviews or or medical education reviews in general um, need to actually um, hit the target and be of help to educators. And as you say, flipped classrooms, not only the educators, but um, clinicians and and discipline experts are uh, talking about it. So it's, it's great to see a systematic review on the subject. But I guess that, that's where my first um, thoughts were reading this, because when I saw the title, as is when you often look at one of these very topical areas, I was honing in looking for definition, because the worry one has, and I, I may be putting my own experience into it, I'm thinking, oh gosh, how would I have done this? And the, the definition they give um, is a good one. I think it's a fair one. Uh, they mentioned that the general definition in, uh, is an approach to which the tasks completed inside and outside of the classroom are opposite to what occurs in traditional classroom. So, and then they go on to give further details, and it is well referenced. And so I think it's a reasonable definition, but I think that's it opened up a more general question I have when one is looking at reviews in education, whereas if you were in clinical medicine, let's say, and you're talking about a particular drug or intervention, very well defined. You know what the stuff you're looking at is. And when you hear that definition of flipped classroom, I, I felt very much that it's a fair one and it was the right choice. But you can see how it's very much at the hands of the authors of primary reviews, uh, uh, studies they're going to be including, as to whether essentially they, they identify themselves, their, their stuff that they're publishing, as being flipped classroom. And I could see how a lot of stuff would not be identified in that way, maybe using a different term, such as active learning. But we're talking about the same thing, and I wondered what you thought about essentially that challenge of how those publishing the research in the first place in education highlights 
so it, it hits the right buttons for future researchers. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and that is the difference between uh, a review in medical education and a view, say, a review, say, in clinical medicine. Um, it's, I think, really, um, I'm glad to see that there is a definition and attention paid to definition in that paper. Um, and then perhaps the next step is to uh, contextualize the definition, search around and see what other definitions there might be and how that might alter the framing uh, of your review because, as you say, otherwise it may be that, that, that your particular definition may have missed um, some important uh, material which uh, other people enact uh, when they do their flipped classrooms. Uh, and actually, uh, it raised a thought along those lines exactly, which is I've had a lot of conversations with potential BME authors, um, and you almost feel that it's one of these new cutting-edge areas in the field which is rapidly having an increase in publications. If almost a focus review, just looking at the question of definition, uh, would be actually appropriate. You know, not a large review, uh, a very focused piece, because you could very clearly and, and quickly define inclusion of papers on the basis of do they define themselves as a classroom and if so what's their definition and that could that could rely on you know you could use it in lots of other places what well, we're talking about you know interprofessional simulation we're talking about handoff or handover of care training we're talking about patient safety uh, within the ward you know and one of these areas whereby actually you do always have that anxiety, and, and, and I, I have on a couple of occasions suggested that that should be a sub-area of someone's review, but I almost wonder if in this sort of area that would have been enough of a piece in its first place. Um, not that the authors did anything wrong not doing that. I don't think they did, and I, I wonder what journal editors in general would look, like, look at if they saw that. Would they think it's too narrow a focus, or actually would they see some value in such a, in such a process? I wonder what you think. Yeah, well, having agreed with you on the subject of clarity of definition or mm. around where definitions are derived from, um, then I think uh, pursuing that to its logical conclusion, um, uh, a piece uh, which looks, which reviews, I mean, that's what we're saying, the available definitions in a robust manner um, would be valuable. Um, and that is actually something that uh, does crop up in the in the review that that, that I'm putting forward. Um, so I, I, do, I do think that is um, a, a very uh, important practical point, and um, it goes back to the value of. Um, in, in many ways, scoping reviews and then discovering that the definition is something which um, uh, differs um, contextually or, or, or whatever, and then making that the subject of, of uh, 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 investigation. So um, I, I would be pro that, and I think that's a particularly valid approach for medical education where there are lots of fuzzy boundaries uh, to, to consider. Uh, and given that you've brought up that, that scoping review Point, which I think is really valid. It's almost as if we prepared here. But um, <laughs> on that basis, um, I think it would be useful to listeners who perhaps haven't performed a BEMI review and may think of scoping in other contexts uh, to maybe clarify what we mean within our process um, by a scoping search and, and how that has uh, a, a part of, of, of doing a full systematic review rather than a separate scoping review. So I don't know perhaps if you want to uh, give your thoughts on what we mean internally in BEMI when we ask potential authors to perform a scoping search to help them work out, you know, where they're going to go next. 
Yeah, um, I think it's very much in the realm of, you know, hopefully you uh, start, embark upon this journey of, of, of reviewing because you have come across something in your practice which precipitates an interesting question for your research review. But then you don't really know um, if that question is something that is going to precipitate a very large volume of, of, of papers and work, body of work for you to review, or, or a smaller one. And it does take time, and, and it's a very practical thing that usually it takes a lot more time than, than you think. So, so the focus, um, which has lots of implications, is, is really important. And it's quite difficult sometimes to, to just know that without doing um, a rough-and-ready scoping search, which, which then leads you to believe that there are very many uh, papers. There's a great body of work on flipped classroom, or um, actually that body of work is, is very small. Or indeed, um, that body of work is so small that, 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 that a review um, you know, is, isn't possible or, or desirable. Um, so um, lots of practical uh, implications. It's, it's, it's informing yourself a bit more of the landscape in which you will be working and how that landscape will in influence both the construction of your review question and how you go about tackling it. And that final point is probably the one that I would very much point for potential authors of any BME or, or non-BME review. Um, um, if you don't know what the contexts are of publications, you can't refine or define a question. If you don't know the, the uh, outcomes that are being reported, you can't define or refine a question. And, and I do sometimes feel that those who maybe come from a quantitative, for example, in medicine, a, co a Cochrane background, and I must hold my hand mm. up of, of, of having a potential conflict <laughs> or, or advantage, depending on one ha looks at that, because I'm an editor for Cochrane as well. It's almost seen as a, um, it, traditionally like it's biased. Like if you know what's out there, you've somehow cheated and, and you know the answer before you start. And of course, that's not the case for Cochrane no. or otherwise. And in this context, as you quite rightly say, it's vital. And, and I suppose that links on to my next point, because for this review, I was very, very excited and I must say surprised when it came to their goals and questions, because they've asked three, three parts of their questions. The first is, what's the scope of studies published? So, so essentially, almost a descriptive yeah. element, which I think is very, very relevant and important. They then said, what's the research quality? And we'll come back to that, because I think how they have looked at it um, is interesting. And the final is, effects as reported by controlled studies. So essentially, what I've read from that, and I think it is what they, they actually do in the end, so they're definitely true to their question, is they've looked yeah. at only studies that have used the controlled uh, uh, sort of model yeah. methodology, and they're looking yeah. at very much a, a justification, if I use David Cook's fantastic uh, sort of framework yeah. or nomenclature, uh, 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 focus. So they do have a bit of descriptive, but there's nothing really there that's looking at clarification uh, from a theoretical perspective. And I guess reading this, and looking at the journal it's in, medical education, that surprised me a little. Because I, I, I yeah. would have thought that even if it's not the primary goal, uh, the, really the change we're talking about in flipped classroom is so basic and so massive for people because it is, it is changing the very tradition of how we were all taught, and, but, but it's supported by a very strong basis in educational science. Uh, and having that almost devoid from this paper which it is, I think, when you look through the rest of it. It isn't an element that's looked at. I wonder if that's perhaps a missed opportunity. I wonder if actually yeah. it's something that 
it's like, I, I could be, I wouldn't say cynical, but I could theorize that it's entirely possible the authors have done that as a separate piece. And actually, together, it was just too large. And that's something we find in BB, because we have 12,000 words, and this is in 3,000. But I wondered what you thought about those three questions when yeah. you saw the title. Did you have the, the sort of same or different thoughts to me? Well, I, I thought that the way they'd gone about it was, was very logical, actually. You know, important mm. question, uh, logical dissection. Um, and then I think I do have to agree with you in the sense of... Um, what you do with a review is probably, if you're honest with yourself, uh, is, is, is influenced by your background. And I think if you come from a positivist quantitative discipline, and I started off doing antibody research um, yeah. and randomized controlled trials. So, um, you know, I, I do, I've sort of almost done 180 degree turn. I do understand that, um, you know, uh, that there are wider methodologies and more complex methodologies need to be applied to the rather more, um, if I can say messy, I mean it in a really good way, the, sure. the, the real world sense of medical education. And therefore, um, for me, uh, one is fine, which is about the scope, because that's really um, what we were talking about. Um, research quality, absolutely. And then we have, as reported by controlled studies, and that is, I think, where it comes unstuck a bit for me, because that is what I would think of, perhaps, as being premature closure. There must be stuff out there that isn't a controlled study that might be useful and might um, uh, enable us to produce an argument um, uh, a, a validity argument, if you like, in 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 the, in the sense that, uh, say, someone like Cook would would, would describe. Yeah. And I think if you look at figure one on page 587, I think you look at what's been excluded from the quantitative element. Mm. I would agree. You know, they've got an action research piece. They've got admittedly some commentaries which you could potentially argue that, it, you know, have issues, but it depends on the nature without seeing them individually. They've yeah. got before and after designs. They've got uh, yep. before and after. You know, there's, there's potentially stuff that, that, you know, is good quality. And again, I come from the same tradition as yourself. And I remember when I started in the world of education, I was determined to prove that someone could do a random trial that was of Cochrane quality within education and why would no one else bother and I think a lot of people are there and I guess I wonder when you were talking I was I was wondering are you are you seeing this almost potentially that this could be a good thing but that, that you know they've got an audience and there's a readership and the readership of the journal is varied its impact factor is going up and up and a lot of our colleagues across the wider fields of all health professions and I must stress that I'm not just talking perhaps medicine or nursing but across the scope of this journal which despite the title is massive and varied um, and yeah. almost having that comfort zone you know uh, dealt with and of course the people who are often uh, the, the targets for this are taking this to people with money people who are having to commission massive changes in this case it would be to potentially curricula you know to to make a design of flipped classroom they're potentially going to want to see a justification argument and almost that theoretical argument whilst it's very interesting and important we would argue and um, I, I do wonder and I thought perhaps that have I inferred that's an element of the point you're making that, that it's not mm. that one's better than the other it's that um, no. there's other elements and, and lenses for us to hold up but but I think you're right I think I think it would be a shame to not consider and it's surprising that there's any studies that are controlled. I mean, that, I would have thought that's a reflection <laughs> on today's times. If this would have been 20 years ago, talking about PBL, I don't think we'd find any. 
Yes. No, I, I completely agree with you, and I think that box is crucial. Studies excluded from the quantitative synthesis, and you know, of course, but action research, might that not have important messages for us? Um, before and after design studies, very often that's, you know, commonly done in, in, in the field of education because it's all you can do. Um, and, uh, you know, similarly with, with, with the other designs. So um, when we're not really in, in, a, in a context where students enjoy being randomized because they think they miss out, and particularly in these days where you pay for education. Um, and, uh, you know, faculty doesn't like being randomized either. So we're not, we're, it's, it's a really difficult real world situation. Um, and I think excluding um, studies which have, uh, you know, diverse methodologies uh, in this way, we might be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's a terrible simile, but, but that's, that's in many ways what it feels like to me. Unless you've investigated it and said, well, no, that's not what I'm doing. Or maybe there is another paper from the whole of that box. I don't know. Well, and, and of course, you don't want to necessarily be misquoted, and, and there may be listeners who will suggest, are you proposing then that the the hierarchy of methods is not valid in education and surely no. if, you, if you and and of course I'm, I'm very much you know putting that out for devil's advocate purposes I, I guess <laughs> I think what we're saying is that because of the reality of the field we find ourselves in um, and the reality as you quite rightly say practicalities of one the research one can do um, you might and I think it's entirely appropriate term you might be throwing the baby out with the bathwater it's a matter of I think presenting it in a manner, and I guess that the real reason I raise it is, I just find it surprising. I find it surprising that this choice, um, not just made, but I guess I find it surprising that, that there's no further really in-depth analysis. And then when you come into, for example, their results regarding perceptions of flipped classroom, you know, I think one could argue that anyone who's done a flipped classroom, it, it's not the question of whether it was studied in a randomized controlled trial that denotes quality. Surely it's the, it's the way that the deployment of the flipped classroom has been done that denotes mm. the quality that would make, and that's my final point on methodology that I was going to raise with you, and it's one that you know I've been writing about in several places, including this journal mm -hmm. recently, which is I don't see any particular measure or attempt to measure in any great detail the quality of the deployment of the flipped classroom. So did they have a clear understanding, as I'm sure many did, but have they described the uh, methods they used to deploy that massive shift in pedagogy? Have they described how that's impacted and influenced changes to learning outcomes? Have they described the resources required and the cost of them? All these elements that, to me, are needed for quality to be considered in this terms. Because if we just focus on the quality of the intervention, we are coming from that positivist background, which is the drug is defined. Mm. We know what a tenolol is. I don't have to define to you on a study of a tenolol what it is. I just need to say I used it to drop blood pressure. But in this case, the stuff is not defined. And that famous quote that comes up time and time again in meetings is, we don't know what 300 milligrams of education looks like. And when you're doing yeah. one of these state-of-the-field reviews of a new quantity, and I kind of assumed from their question one, they were going to do this descriptive element. You almost want to have a lot of what the stuff is before you then say whether it works. And, and to me, mm. I, I didn't get as much of that. I don't think that means the authors haven't done it. I think they are in absolutely steeped in this literature and understand it like the back of their hand. Um, and I think at some point in the writing, that's either been um, 
taken out of it for, the, for practical purposes, for space purposes, or maybe even through the editorial process. As certainly happened to me on occasion with, I remember vividly being told by a journal, we love this piece, we love this randomized trial of education, just make sure you remove all the education. <laughs> okay, that sounds terrible. Um, all right. No, um, I, 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 I sort of, I completely agree. I think there are valuable um, practical um, points that could be made from the studies excluded. And I agree with you. I think, you know, probably the, the, the feedback from, from me would, would be, well, you know, maybe that's another paper. Maybe, you know, because you have um, been through this literature and understand this field um, very, very uh, in, in great detail, then um, perhaps looking at uh, all those other studies that, that have been ex excluded, which are, you know, studies included... I mean, they go down, full text is 82, and mm. the quantitative synthesis is 9, sort of you know, slightly more than 10%. Um, um, and and there must, to, to me, I would value some sort of feedback from them, commentary or, or understanding um, of uh, what else is in that? Uh, what else is going on in 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 that area of, of flipped classroom? Because I think it it is of practical value to people, to educators. And I think I would again. I think we're in total agreement. And I think the last point I'd make is really to, to lord the authors with all my positive praises, because when you get into the final sections on page five ninety one, their discussion, I think they make yeah. a really big deal of mentioning the limitations they've put onto themselves by picking a specific context. They were in undergraduate medical education. They weren't in multi-professional. They weren't yeah. in postgraduate. They've made that point, and then they digest what the implications are of that. And I think, actually, that's a very, very important point that often is kind of inferred. It's there in the methodology, in the um, uh, sort yeah. of inclusion-exclusion criteria. It's not discussed. And actually, that is not a, a critique in a negative sense. That's a very positive thing that I think the authors have done. Because as we say, it's ubiquitous in discussion in health education, the concept of flipped classroom. But, but you mentioned early on this idea of context. And I think through scoping, clearly they've made a decision that this was the, this is where their own decisions were being led. This is where their own work wanted them to go. And I'm often asked by people, you know, but is that, is that a problem? You know, I'm, I'm interested in nursing. I'm working in nursing. I know it's not the same. I would like to do this focused on nursing. Is that, is that a problem to you? And, and my answer is just that. It's not a problem. It's only a problem if it's a problem to you. It, you know, the yeah. best place in your, in your mind and in your heart for a review to come from is from your own interest and your own place of working. And I think if, that, if, that's, where, if that's the question you need answering locally... Then, then answer it. It doesn't mean that you can generalize this to another field. It might mean you can. You don't know. But as long as you accept that, make that clear and transparent to the reader, I think that's to be lauded, and I think they've done that beautifully. Mm, no, I completely agree. It's, it's, uh, it's obviously uh, born of, of something that they are involved in and uh, has been very useful to them and, and indeed to us. Well, yeah, and I think that would be exactly, you know, I really enjoyed reading it. That's where I would end talking about this piece, except for to say, you know, we, we've theorized. I would be very surprised if we didn't see this team's name popping up very soon with, if not a companion piece, either a follow-up piece with their own developments, which will be born out of that evidence, which is fantastic, and we want to increasingly see primary literature coming through in education that, that purposefully cites 
reviews as being where they took their inspiration and their evidence from, or even those other elements of the review, then it may just be that 3,000 words is out of, out of the context. And before we come on to your piece, which is a beamy review, that's exactly the one plug I would make as, a, as an honest conflict of interest as the, the, the editorial committee uh, chair, which is that we do have that extra space within a beamy publication. We have 12,000 words, and sometimes that gives authors more space to explore uh, and, and more detail, and it's purely a pragmatic convenience, but it is there. So, so that would be where I'd end things for this paper, and I think, you know, absolute congratulations to, to the team for a fantastic read, a really good piece, and I'm sure it will be exceedingly well cited over the next few years. So I don't know if you had Absolutely. any final thoughts on the paper. No, I completely agree with you. I think it's a topic of the moment, and uh, it's excellent. You know, we're always saying timely feedback, and this is this is a timely review um, to help the education community in in uh, something that that is very very current. And um, as we can see, uh, needs further work and indeed further research. So, no, all credit to them, and uh, and yes, more please. Well, on that note, then, I think let's move on to, to the paper that you've suggested. Now, um, this is Beamy Guide number 23, uh, so this will be available from the Beamy website as well as Medical Teacher. I think it was in, uh, 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 it was in the journal's um, volume 34, um, and uh, apart from knowing... Uh, before I read it, that the author was very familiar to us and was previously on the editorial committee of BME. At the time, in fact, this was written, uh, Jill Thistlethwaite, who we now know is in uh, many exalted positions, including uh, editor of uh, Clinical Teacher. Um, I was wondering if you want to take it away and let us know what, what you thought about this paper and perhaps why it drew, you were drawn to it in the first place, because it's a very interesting area. Okay, right. Well, um, two reasons. One is a disclosure that I was actually um, at Warwick um, at the time that this was current. And we were talking about the, the, the previous um, review on the effectiveness of flipped classrooms um, because it was, it was something that, that uh, was encountered in, in, in daily practice. And equally, this review was born out of the fact that um, there, there was a curricular review going on and um, more and more people were um, talking about case-based uh, learning and uh, the, the review committee uh, were debating whether case-based learning was the way to go. Um, and so the answer to that is, well, you know, can we find any evidence? What is the evidence? And hence this uh, BME review uh, was born. And um, so that's again a very practical way because one doesn't want to do a review to be, to be sort of isolated and gather dust um, this was useful for informing policy and, and strategy uh, in terms of curricular development which I think is, is an important uh, use for reviews yeah absolutely and uh, clearly uh, I'd already made my sort of my own view that I think that really adds value to the process and it becomes something that maybe is harder in clinical practice where drugs are used by so many or interventions are. This is something that can really be personal to something you're doing internally. So um, since you're at the epicenter of while it was going on, I think that's, that's very interesting and a very fair reason to, to select. Okay. okay. Well, would you like to perhaps um, take us through the, the paper from your perspective yeah. then? And Yes, I will do. So, um, I mean, the, the, the comment is that, that uh, you know, this was much needed in, in the educational community um, uh, at, at, at Warwick at the time for practical reasons, but also when one just, just did a very brief um, 
scoping search, if you like, it was apparent that, that actually there were a variety of meanings and approaches here. Um, and that is very much reflected in this review. It was, I think, started in 2010 and published in 2012. Um, and um, what, uh, what I'll, I'll point I'll talk you through what I consider to be the useful and interesting uh, features. One is the introduction, which actually lets you into this area. It's, it's a historical review, um, but it also um, produces the argument um, from other fields as to why uh, case-based learning, which a lot of people recognize as being something that, that uh, um, has been around for a long time, um, has come to the fore. So um, I actually found that introduction and, and really placement of it, um, of the in, uh, entire issue of case-based learning, um, quite uh, relevant. Um, it also threw up the, 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 the fact that we've mentioned with the flipped classroom review, which is the lack of definition. Um, and I think, you know, this happens quite often in medical education, but you find that there are either variable definitions um, well, or, or variable perspectives on, on the issue that, that, that you are dealing with. Um, I think that, it, that is quite common um, from my point of view. What do you think? Well, well I mean, uh, when, I sort of, when I went to this review, I thought it was really nice that, that when just as the point, and I mentioned it in the other paper we talked about, you're looking for a definition, there's been clearly a positive uh, decision made by the authors to, to, to see that as a really important piece of work. And they go through and they talk about the Harvard Business School and how they adopt it and where they put case-based learning. Then they talk about its development within teaching and learning. They give another uh, uh, definition. And then we talk about, well, actually, uh, the elements that are sort of internalized in that and have been sort of used as it's been moved into professional. It almost feels like a narrative piece. But it feels really welcome and it feels born out of people who are incredibly interested in this topic, which of course you've given us now the intelligence of that they were. Um, and I think that really, really speaks well. I mean, I must say, um, I think it is, uh, as I've already kind of slightly plugged, but I'm saying this hopefully slightly less um, uh, with a conflict of interest, I think it's born out of the fact that you have more words to play with and you, you probably wouldn't be able to fit this in the, in the, in the context yeah. of a, a normal 3,000 word article because you've used up 1,500 words with your, with your background. But I think it, it reads beautifully and actually because of that, I think it increases the timelessness of the piece because you know where the world was then and how far the journey had gone. Um, and it's very clear in, in, in making that journey, you know, very, very obvious to the reader. So if I was looking at this again, say, in five or ten years, I'd know where things have gone from then, but I'd know at this point this was a snapshot and how we'd got to that point. And I don't think you find that in many reviews. So I think it's a testament to the, uh, uh, the, re the writers. And I think it's really, really well written. It really got me interested to the next thing, of course, that you always go and look for, which is the, the objective um, yes. of the review. <laughs> yes. So um, I thought having contextualized this, and, and we know that, that contextualization is so important in education, mm -hmm. we, then ha we then reach a, a clear articulation of the review aim to explore, yeah. analyze, and synthesize the evidence relating to the effectiveness of case-based learning, uh, etc. And then um, some defined objectives, so identifying the published evidence, evaluating obviously the strengths and limitations, and then proposing a definition. And then having gone through that whole process of considering the landscape, they've then developed some 
subsidiary questions, which are quite practical and, um, you know, of, of, of sort of practical values for, for the educational community. So how is CBL defined? What methods are, are used? What are students and educators' views? Um, what about uh, CBL in health professions education? How does it work? How does it promote learning? So um, all of that, I think, um, has, has made them really formulate uh, where they're going with this review uh, in, in a very uh, clear, itemized way. Well, yeah, and I think that it, it links, of course, beautifully to our previous discussion that they've actually put definition there. That's one of the, uh, one of the items that was key. Uh, interestingly, this raised a little bit of an internal issue for me from a BME perspective, which is I think that shift is appropriate. I think it's been born out of what they found in the literature. And obviously scoping is something that we didn't require as part of a BME process back in 2010 when they probably no. started this. But actually they've clearly done that and they've revised the protocol. And I guess the question I wanted to pose to you, which is not for the authors but for us is, I've just bobbed onto the BME website and I can see the published paper and I can see the uh, spotlight and the, the medical teacher piece. I can't see the protocol. Uh, and that means we, and I know we do, so I'm being slightly um, <laughs> silly in bringing it up, but I know it's something we do. We remove the protocols once the pieces are published. I don't think we should, because actually I think it would be lovely to be able to look up the published protocol on the BME website, have that there for time, and be able to do as we do, for example, in Cochrane processes, uh, and say, well, we changed the protocol. And we changed it for the following reasons as we went along. So you've got that transparency, you've got that lack of bias, but actually you're allowing the authors to, to, to be reflexive as they're doing the review process and enhance the utility of the review to reflect what sometimes can be very um, surprising in terms of, for example, the volume of, of the literature, because I think that's where, where this shift has been born out of. So I wonder what you thought about, about the importance of that from a BME perspective. Yes, I, I, well, I think you're absolutely right, and, and um, I think uh, one has to own that you write the protocol um, with the best of intentions and your knowledge at that time. Once you um, delve into the, the, the body of, of, of the research that you have, um, you know, your perspective is, is going to change, and it's going to be hopefully better informed um, and therefore that that iteration should be allowed provided it's clear and provided you can explain uh, what happened and, if, and, and in the normal course of events you would be able to so I completely agree with you and um, I think it might enrich the process because uh, I think people starting BME reviews um, it's not you know, it can be quite confusing, and I think that uh, it would be really helpful for them to see that iteration is allowable um, on the basis of, uh, and it's almost like having a worked example. It's always a lot clearer, I think, to people. And, of course, the examples are going to be quite diverse because that's the field that we're working in, but I think this would be a very helpful thing. Well, and I think it's worth pitching for non-BME authors at that point, the fantastic Prospero service. So that's the International yes. Prospective Register of Systematic Reviews. That's run out of York uh, University. It's an NIHR uh, initiative. The, the web link is uh, www.crd.york.ac.uk forward slash Prospero, P-R-O-S-P-E-R-O. Uh, and that allows you uh, to pop any protocol for any systematic review online, very similar to registering a trial on a trials database. And it allows you to do just that. So you've got this great tool that people who, for example, are planning a review, 
can see if you're already doing it, so they can either collaborate or change their ideas. Um, it allows you to have something you can pop onto a, a, a publication at the end and say, here is our protocol, so please check and feel free to make sure that we've been transparent and biased, and that's there with a date and timestamp. Uh, and it's there for uh, uh, sort of, you know, prosperity, you know, of, of, of methodology and posterity of, of practice. You know, so you've got something there as a snapshot of where you were. And in terms of watching where methodologies are going, so thinking on the methodology rather than the content end of mm. review, I think it's really useful. So I would actually suggest that increasingly BME uh, authors are asking us, can they use Prospero as well, which the answer, of course, is yes. But anyone listening who's planning their own review, I would strongly advise you to use this or if there's a similar local service. Uh, I think it can only add strength and, uh, to the process. So a slight plug there. I don't have any involvement, so there isn't a conflict of interest with that one. <laughs> it's a great service, and I have used it myself, and I think it's really user-friendly and very easy and I, I think really a positive initiative by the NIHR. Yeah, I completely agree. There's no point in reinventing the wheel and um, standing on the shoulders of other giants, reading their protocols and thinking about them and uh, um, collaborating or, or improving your own is, is, is a, a very uh, good way to go. Um, I, I completely agree with that. Okay, um, so just uh, moving forward, I think selection criteria, inclusion, exclusion, um, again, we were talking about modifying. You know, you may write your protocol with inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, they may change um, a, a little. And interestingly enough here, they put, um, they excluded problem-based learning. Um, papers so focus solely on problem-based learning. But in fact, they say quite a bit about the comparison with PBL because obviously as they drew uh, and, uh, papers and read them, um, the comparison between case-based learning and problem-based learning was something that featured. So um, maybe that's an example of, of, of slightly um, modifying uh, your perspective as, as you go because of what you find. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, uh, and I think, I think uh, as we've said already, uh, it, it's almost um, a, a sort of par for the course element of the process. It, it, it's the very nature, and I think you said messy uh, in a very positive way before. It, it is messy. The field is messy. So actually it's not in any way wrong to expect change, you know, and to expect that, re, you know, change of your attitudes, change of your understanding, change of your methods, change of everything. So, so absolutely, I think it's, it's a messy science, but part of the process of systematic review is, is to try and give some clarity. It doesn't mean it's not messy. It may be you're just moving and making art from the mess. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that. And, and, and making sense and uh, enabling other people to um, you know, hit the ground running with, with their development in, in, in that area if, if you happen to, to uh, be, uh, have reviewed it like the flipped classroom one. Okay, so then um, I think uh, the next point for me was... Um, they, they you know, did fairly standard databases um, and, and gave us clear tables about where stuff had come from. And as usual, um, Medline um, produces quite a lot. Um, uh, Web of Knowledge, Web of Science usually also does produce a lot. Um, so, you know, quite, quite interesting results, but, but uh, uh, not forgetting uh, things like CINAHL for health professions education because mm -hmm. they didn't focus so, solely on uh, doctors, which was good. Mm -hmm. um, 
and MBase to include European literature, um, and uh, so all of those decisions I, I would applaud. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they use the BME coding sheet, um, which I mean I don't know what you feel about the BME coding sheet because it's a really good. I mean we're talking about worked examples. It's a really good start. And very often people start off with the BME coding sheet, but um, modify it so much that actually they're almost customizing uh, the, the, the coding sheet. Um, I don't know what, what your experience uh, is. You, you've been at it longer. Well, I, no, no I, think, I think that's right. I mean, the coding sheet is often used because it's something that's citable. I've used it myself. Mm. You, you often do need to uh, modify it so much that, as you say, it, 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 what you've actually gained versus what you've lost um, it's not really fair to even cite it as comparison. And I think that perhaps the coding sheet is due a revamp. And it's something that, uh, uh, again, um, uh, I've got to be totally honest and transparent, we are on the case with in the editorial. And in fact, we were going to link in with our other colleagues within the various committees, including your own, uh, because clearly that has implications on, on uh, for example, how we teach people what we're doing or actually, you know, the utility of the evidence for our colleagues working in the, uh, you know, Transparency to Practice Committee. But I think, I think it was a reflection of the time. And it, yes. it, it, it's, there are several key elements missing. And one of them that springs to mind is the conversation we've already had, which is about how we consider quality of interventions of an educational nature. Um, the other mm. thing that I always... Uh, come to uh, uh, when I'm sort of thinking about the coding sheet, it's one of its key elements, probably its major innovation, is is this element of judging quality of uh, the results as they relate to the conclusions made. Uh, Because on the one hand, I love that idea because I think it's so common in education pieces to see a very small paper with a very poorly described intervention that has been tested by level one Kirkpatrick outcomes saying five students enjoyed it. And the conclusion is this teaching can reduce death substantially across the globe through massive increases in knowledge. Thank you very much. And that's not a fair conclusion. It isn't supported by the, by the results. So having a measure for that, I think, is important. So on the one hand, I feel uh, uh, happy with that. On the other hand, I feel it's a very reductionist approach of looking at quality. And there have been several papers that I've read over the years since that coding sheet's been operation that almost use that as a proxy for an overall score. So papers are scored, well, this was a 5 out of 5, this was a 3 out of 5. Um, mm. And I don't think that's appropriate either. It's one aspect of the tapestry of elements that would make this up. And it's back to your comment about messy in a good way, and I love that idea. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's one element. It's, it's too messy to look at just one element. And I think that's probably probably the biggest downfall of the moment uh, of the coding sheet. And so I think that's why we need a revamp. And I guess the reason why I'm slightly hesitant is I think that has to be more than just me. I think that needs to be across the field. So really what I'd like to see is um, stakeholders across education uh, be involved in that process. It's how we bring people together and perhaps through our you know, supporting a, a foundation of Amy might be a way that we can get people together to, 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 to go down that road. But I think it's definitely something we need uh, because, as you say, it, it, it does have, unfortunately, as it is at the moment, it does have limitations that mean that people essentially are making their own work anyway, and in which case, why have something that's, that's there to try and give some objectivity? It's not really achieving that. 
Yeah, well, we're back to the sort of arguments um, that you produced and discussed in your paper about paradigms, which yeah. is, you know, it's, it's, it's stemming from a very positivist paradigm, and it's also stemming from a very human desire to, you know, hang on to something that's, that's got definition. Um, I personally, having sort of worked with the the things I've worked with feel that there isn't a coding sheet. There's, it's, it's a complex area, and to deal with that complexity and contextuality, we're going to have to have examples of multiple, if you like, coding sheets. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, and well, I and actually, if, yeah, if you look at any checklists which are designed to do it on the other end, and so take Consort as an example, or Prisma, they've done just that. They start off with a single item and then you look down on the consult website now and there's maybe 15 different forms of guidance and so absolutely i could either see a, a new form which rather than being a sheet it almost asks you questions it could be very smart and could say what type of review what focus what questions what context and it could almost generate a coding sheet uh, on a on a individual basis yeah. or alternatively say well here's one for this context or even here's a section on this if you're going to judge quality in this way, here's this section. If you're going to look at effectiveness outcomes, here's this whole bit. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's absolutely many directions to go. And I think we're probably agreeing on a conclusion, which is it's outside the scope of you or I uh, to take it forward alone. But I think there's definitely a need. Uh, and so it is yeah. on our agenda. And, and I guess what I'd say is to any listeners who are, who, who are having this discussion uh, uh, sort of going while they're, while they're pondering their own choices, uh, reach out to us because having a, a, a sort of a, a multi-professional, uh, multi-institutional approach or building that sort of consensus that there's a need here would be a great first step to actually taking it forward. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Well, that's you know that's I think enough about the coding sheet. Um, it was yeah. it, it, it was good because it it's a it needs an extended complex conversation and and uh, engagement from stakeholders as you said. Um, it's it's always good to see um, you know frameworks uh, in uh, applied and and they've chose to use Kirkpatrick's mm. um, and. Interesting enough, we, we, we then have the inter-rater agreement. An inter-rater agreement is, is vital because, um, you know, we're not in, in, we're in an area where lots of value judgment occurs. And, and so um, it was good to see that described. Um, certainly some reviews also actually look at uh, how, uh, the, how much their uh, raters agreed um, uh, and, and produced numbers. But this, this, I mean, it's very much a narrative review. They told us how they got from A to B. Um, and uh, I think that um, the, the findings uh, bear out that, that, that actually their, their process seems to be as inclusive as possible, which is, I think, uh, what the intention was. So what do you, one of the talking points at last year's BME Short Communication Session at Amy was whether or not it's, it, I guess what I inferred from the points being made at that session were, it's somehow too positivist and not within the uh, uh, sort of traditions of our alternate perspectives in social science and education to suggest that you do need interrater agreements. Uh, and it was yeah. a point that I was surprised to find and disagreed with, because like yourself, I feel that, you know, whilst there may be complexity and a different framework of understanding knowledge, and at the very point I made in my paradigms piece in Medical Teacher, uh, when it comes to sort of synthesis and when it comes to framing questions, actually the whole point of the systematic component that underpins BME and underpins the 
papers we've talked about both of them today and many publications in this field is that you're trying to give transparency, reproducibility, and, and uh, uh, reduce bias. Now, there's always bias and there's always subjective judgments, but we are trying to, as the educational community, take something from this. And if I can take something from it and you, as a co-rater, take the same, our analysis may differ, and that may be incredibly, uh, mm. you know, sort of steeped in a different research tradition. But there is a positivity there. But I don't think that's positivist, and I don't think that's a weakness of the methodology. I think having that element as you're extracting data for readers who are reading this piece and want to know they can trust what you're saying, I think is kind of vital. So I wonder what you thought about um, that discussion has always kept in my mind now for almost a year. <laughs> Yes, I think, well, I, I, it would be good if um, the uh, educational review community um, could actually reach uh, the, the, the point where we can give a bit more clarity and transparency and look at how re reproducible things are. Um, uh, the review I'm doing currently, the, the number of times inter-rater reliability is, is, is quoted is, is, is not high. And um, it is the exception to see people trained to, um, you know, interrater reliability, which is, it's, it's quite interesting. It's, um, and maybe it's a, a time resource thing. I mean, it does take a lot of time, that, that sort of thing. And a lot of, con if you're doing a review, a lot of conferring. Um, you know, I think, I think if these reviews are unfunded uh, and, uh, you know, it, it may be that, that people try and get from A to B in a reasonable uh, manner and I mean here they've described that, that there's lots of description there are lots of tables as to how they've got from from, from A to B with this review so um, if one wanted to work backwards one one and, and uh, just verify uh, what they've done one could um, but yeah I, I, I think it, it it would be very good I mean the the, the it would be interesting for educationists to try and aim for as much robustness as possible in terms of transparency, how they do things, how reducible they are, reproducible they are, and, um, and to look at the bias that, that creeps in. Um, because, because, I mean, we, we, we all have, um, have our, our biases and, and one just has to be honest about that. Well, and I think that links beautifully to our discussion on the previous piece, because again, I don't think at any point were we suggesting that a review that tries to look at quality evidence as defined by the methodology of evaluation looking at controlled studies is wrong. I don't think that is wrong at all. That's probably sort of born of the same desire we've just discussed to add robustness and quality. I think all we were saying there was it's not the only way, and perhaps what you've given away is indeed, as you said, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think in the context of reviews, I take your very practical and pragmatic point that sometimes people don't have the resource. But I think my final thought on that would be, then say that and put methods in place, perhaps with some random checks or some initial uh, you know, mm. uh, checks on the first 5 or 10% to see if there's an issue. And in actual fact, um, even if, even if we're, we're, uh, we're not um, going to be doing spot checks and we're going to be doing it for the whole review into rate of checking, for the first 5 or 10%, I try to put a lot of scrutiny on it anyway. Because if you get 50% of the way through 500 or 1,000 of your papers down, and you find, as I did with a review with a BME team, not... not too long ago that, that they'd included 400 and I'd included four, um, you know, you've got a very long discussion. 
Yes, absolutely. A very long discussion. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's good of you to, to actually mention that because it, it does happen. I mean, you know, the, um, you do have to make judgments on, on, on these papers. And uh, uh, very often I find you don't disagree with what the, the, the issue, if you like, the point of discussion in the paper is. You just disagree with how you're coding it, I suppose, which side of a, uh, a review line it falls, and, and, and that's, that's where a lot of work um, comes in. But yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Okay, um, so uh, what's happened here, that, that they, they do actually provide a lot of tables with a lot of useful summaries of, of the sorts of of data that they're dealing with. Um, and uh, again, referencing back to the previous uh, paper where they wanted controlled studies, um, here we've got 63 papers with single cohorts, um, 30 with multiple, uh, nine with different year groups, and two with historical controls. So it's like two-thirds of the papers are single cohorts. Um, then again, there's 75% uh, post-intervention only, 22% uh, pre and post. So, you know, you're not going to get a, a lot of controlled studies out of that, um, you know, which uh, again was found with the flipped um, classroom paper. And most of the time, actually, I mean, it happens to me an awful lot. Perhaps it's just what I deal with. But, uh, well, I, yeah, I, I think, again, it's the same message coming through time and time again, which is, the context in which we find ourselves is perhaps so different to the tradition that inspired the, the Beamy movement. You know, it was born out of medical uh, medical field, uh, seeing great success in 1995 with that first Cochrane uh, publication and the tremendous impact and so on and so forth. And it, we're almost 20-year anniversary, two more years to go, to the founding of Beamy, um, and we're still grappling with this complexity because, because mm. that's the complexity of the reality. I guess one thing I would say, though, kind of along that note and as, as, as a side point to, I think, where I entirely agree with you is, um, it, it's this, uh, when we look at things like outcomes of Kirkpatrick's, um, one thing that perhaps you could infer, and it is an inference and it might not be right from this paper, is that there is a hierarchical element to it. And, and the problem with Kirkpatrick's hierarchy is the title, in that, like all hierarchies, one, one uh, uh, sort of thinks, well, four's better than three, and three's better than two, and two's better than one. And I come back to a piece, I think, by Tim Dornan uh, with uh, yes. Yardley, where he talks a lot about this. And I cite an awful lot. Um, I think it was in 2012. And, and they talk yes. about, look, that's not the way to interpret it. In fact, the best way to think of the hierarchy is probably the complexity for the researcher in the first place, or the money. It could, it could easily equate to cost. But it doesn't necessarily equate that way, and it certainly doesn't equate to quality. Um, and so a hierarchy yeah. maybe is the wrong word, and maybe, you know, that the pyramid should be, or the triangle should be redrawn as a, as a, as a uh, rectangle. And it's just, here we are. These are just different aspects, different ways of looking at things. And again, I don't think the authors were making that suggestion. It's not as explicit as it is no. in some pieces, where they would deem that the evidence base is of low quality because. Um, you know, and again, as was made very clear by, by um, them in that paper, and I think we would both agree with, it's not what you look at, it's how you look at it. And it's yes. a level of, of, you know, so a level one outcome is looking at, you know, user satisfaction that explore with an appropriately robust methodology that allow you to really, really learn and take the field forward, particularly if it's a new intervention, or what you do with that in the future. It's far more powerful than having, say, for example, a really good validated test that 
you just report the numbers and that's it. You know, it, it's what you want to take and it's how it links to your research questions. Now, I don't think, I'll be interested in what you think, I don't think they were suggesting that necessarily. Rather, they were just no. giving the spread of the evidence. Uh, and I think perhaps this is where this piece is, is, is quite strong, in that they don't fall into that trap. And, and frankly, when it was written four or five, six years ago, I think a lot of people were falling into that trap. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I agree. Well, I very carefully said that I was pleased to see a framework, had, a framework had been applied. And I think uh, I did not say it was a hierarchical f framework. And, and, and I completely agree about... Uh, uh, I, I think Tim Dornan's critique is, is, is sort of goes hand in hand if, if you're considering using Kirkpatrick. Um, but yes, the way they get around this is that this is a narrative review. This is structured as a narrative review, and they say, you know, this study was not amenable to traditional quantitative meta-analysis, goodness me, because of the variability of interventions, information, student numbers, and lack of them, and timings. And therefore, um, they uh, adopted a, a narrative synthesis, which then has led to a very rich description answering the uh, research questions that they set out, which I think was a very good way of approaching in terms of clarity and uh, you know, helping the reader through this. Uh, and, and I think that's a very, very right. I think it's be really easy to read their synthesis component using that narrative approach and going through or descriptive, I suppose, if we're using David Cook's framework. Um, I also like comparing it to the last paper. They do make notice of methods. They have a whole section on page yeah. E432, significant papers involving comparisons or controls. So they're, they're addressing yeah. that in the, in the kaleidoscope of findings. And they do a similar one when they talk about longer-term evaluation. Again, always yeah. a key issue, often not looked at. Um, and it, it, it beautifully illustrates where the state of the field is. And I suppose leads on to the next thing I'm sure you're going to comment on, which is this lovely question about the summary of the answers to the questions, but also well, where are we going to go next? And yes, indeed. It's a really, really beautiful you know, uh, roadmap of how to do a fantastic review. Yes. No, I, I, I rather like that because it is a difficult field. So they've taken us through the field. They've looked at methodology. They, they've they've uh, commented on, on the methodology. And then, uh, as you say, on E434, uh, we have a summary of answers to research questions. How is CBL defined? What methods are used? Etc. Etc. Um, is CBL effective in health professional education? Yes, but there's patchy and inconclusive evidence that it is more effective than other methods. Mm. So, you know, quite, quite um, open and, 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 and honest, I think. Um, they did uh, think about how it uh, promoted learning and um, looked at inquiry-based learning. Uh, and uh, indeed, there is a modified... Um, diagram figure one on E435, student yeah. learning in CBL on an inquiry-based continuum adapted from Entwistle and Banshee and Bell. And, you know, that, that, that's quite a useful use of the review. We, we have read all these papers. We've thought about their, their impact and we've thought about how, how, how things actually work. So 
um, I thought that was that was quite interesting. Um, and, and in general, I think their use of tables and figures is and the narrative is is is, is very good here. Um, it is very, it is very re reader focused, isn't it? Really, mm, as a piece. Mm, uh, but again, mm. I would like to I'd like to give a little bit more airtime to Chen and team with their much more recent piece. And I'd like to really pose the final question I posed before we talked about this piece, which is within the limitations of a mainstream medical education journal, and we think of the top ten or fifteen in the field: medical education, academic medicine, and go down the list: medical teacher, and you know all of them that are in there. And in three thousand, maybe three and a half thousand words at a push. You simply couldn't achieve what, the, no. what they've achieved in this. And I guess the question I have then is, because not everyone would choose the Beamy Roots, not everyone would choose the Beamy Roots publication, why should they? But are we able, with the complexity of education research, to essentially expect perhaps what I was raising as expectations for the authors in that other piece? Um, I, I just don't think... You, I don't think it's achievable in 3,500 words. I mean, it, it's at least the size of a master's thesis. So you need, you need, you know, three and a half times the space. And I, I, I wonder, well, what is the solution? Because people are going to keep publishing systematic reviews. I wonder, do we need the field to recognize that maybe it's a special case and the editors to come together and say, well, maybe for these reviews, if they're done appropriately and with appropriate questions, we will allow more words. I, I don't know what the solution is, but I think it's a real challenge. Yes, indeed. No, I, I agree with you, but I think the we might like to consider the fact that uh, there is um, space for um, sort of pub publicizing the practical points from a review and then having the extended version uh, on the internet. So it's a mm -hmm. you know a, a, a bit a bit like you know the spotlight. Um, yes. could, uh, uh, and, and and then yeah, yeah. yes and and then which which just you know if you want a quick look at the major uh, messages from this review uh, that is where you find them on the other hand if you're interested in um, uh, putting flipped classrooms into uh, you know your your medical curriculum perhaps you need the the, the long version uh, and and you need a, a much more nuanced um, understanding of the field which you will get from uh, slightly more than 3,000 words indeed but I guess I guess the final thought I'd have on that is is it is it a uh, is it a result of the field in which they find themselves and it may be that they just I theorize they've got another piece on the way or someone else has, and perhaps you just wave a white flag and you do find yourself. I'm doing it right now, 20 minutes before this discussion. I, <laughs> we, we've got a piece that we've submitted to one journal, which we know is very focused on one element, and another is going into another, and, and it's because we can't do it in 3,000 words. So uh, it's almost born, as I said, with good reviews are born out of your own experience. The question's born out of my own challenges, and I, I wonder if... <laughs> I wonder if anyone, perhaps our listeners, have any other alternative of how, how one deals with that difficulty when we find ourselves in such complex situations and writing for writing set. I mean, I know there is one journal that, for example, has a series that have a much larger uh, uh, number of words. Teaching and learning in medicine allows, I think, 5,000 word articles uh, a sort of standard in one of their areas. But I can't think off the top of my head of any of the other major journals or even major general health journals that you could potentially go to that, that are allowing that sort of volume. That, again, not a solution, but really just a, another problem for authors to consider at the early stages and perhaps build into their scoping to allow them to define or refine what they're going to talk about. Yep. No, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I think these, these reviews really need to be um, clear 
focused research questions, focused articulation, and we, we need to understand what people have done, and they need to be useful to, to, to the educational community. And then, you know, we need to be able to, to, to get at them. So anything that would assist uh, is, is really quite welcome in that field. Okay. I wonder any more any more thoughts on the on this piece before we wrap up. Um, no, I think we we had. I mean, it was a useful contrast to um, the the Chen systematic review of flipped classrooms. I felt, um, and um, you know, it, the, the the methodological notes um, are clearly articulated and 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 rather sad because they happen time and time again. You know, overall, there were a lot of gaps in the primary studies um, relating to student numbers, relating to description of outcomes, relating to empirical data rather than description. Um, Long-term evaluation is something that we, we are not terribly good at and I think we need to get better at, um, particularly in times of economic hardship. You know, what is the long-term return on investment? Um, so, and, and, and very depressingly, conclusions were often drawn without adequate findings to back these up. I had always fondly believed that that was the job of the reviewers, but there you go. I mean, the reviewers of papers that go into journals, but, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you, can, you, can, you can just see that this, this happens. We're no different to any other um, sector. Um, but, but I, but I uh, think on, on the whole, I think what we can agree 100%, and this process, this chat has convinced me, is despite some limitations and difficulties and pragmatic issues, I think both of these pieces would, would, firm, uh, would make firm you know, quality and foundations for reading and would add something to anyone who was thinking about either of these uh, uh, you know, issues, flipped classroom or case-based learning. And I think this is one of the real strengths of systematic review in any of its forms in education because of the complexity or the messiness, as we've coined on this, on this discussion. <laughs> uh, uh, having anything that can bring some clarity through a, a systematic and therefore, I would argue, transparent, robust, reproducible uh, and reduced bias process is of real benefit. Uh, and so I think both of these pieces we would we'd probably suggest to anyone who were interested in the various areas, case-based or flipped classroom, be a great starting point um, um, to your further reading. Absolutely. Well, I think, as I say, I think worked examples where, where you can understand the decisions that have been made at each point of what is a complex process in a changing environment are really, really useful for people new to reviewing and uh, I think uh, the, the, the more the better in that respect. Okay, well, on that note then, uh, I think uh, it's time to end this discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to uh, everyone and anyone who's uh, listened to this uh, Beamy podcast, and we hope to uh, speak to you again soon. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.